He is also uh, Educational Planning Administration, New Delhi. He is Director of uh, Central Policy Research and Higher Education. And he holds a doctoral degree in economic with a specialization in digital planning. He was head of the commerce, government and management. Now, father of Listen, Shankar, you have to mute yourself, please. He had been closely associated with the educational planning at the federal and decentralized levels and with design and development external funded. We are singularly very happy today to have with him because he got total insights about this policy because he is one of the person who was closely began putting together and releasing it. And warm welcome to you, Mr. Varghese. Now we are request to please deliver the keynote address. More to you, Dr. Varghese. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Captain Vijay Kumar, my friend and highly distinguished professor, Professor Ellis Ganesh, and uh, Madam Chitra Gurumurthy, and Professor Rishikesh, and Dr. Gayatri Deepak, and also my dear participants. It gives me immense pleasure to be here, and I feel honored and privileged to have been invited to participate in this uh, seminar or in this webinar. Nowadays, we don't call seminar. It's only webinar, you know, thanks to the COVID situation. I think, friends, uh, Professor Ganesh has given us very clear directions and roadmap for the next uh, one hour, 40 minutes or 45 minutes, I will be moving. I am given 20 to 25 minutes. Professor Ganesh, I assure you that I will not exceed that time, you know. So, uh, friends, uh, the focus is on school education. That is what I was told. Let me start by getting, before getting into some of the specific issues, let me start by saying that one of the qualities of this education policy is that it considers education as a good thing and education as a good thing for everybody. Now, individual learning is good, but societal learning is an asset, not only for the individual, but also for the whole society. One person learning does not deprive of other person from learning. And this is a source which is, which never gets dried up. And therefore, Education has a lot of changes and differences when we compare with uh, other activities. Two important, unique qualities of education which are to be noted are, one, you will find that uh, when you are talking about education, it is very important to see that if you give this to somebody, you cannot take it back. It is not like giving a money or some one lakh rupees or two lakh rupees to somebody and take it back after two months or three months. If you give, you cannot take it back. The second dimension of the change is that you cannot inherit education because you have to acquire education. Even if your father is a very renowned professor, even if he's a Nobel laureate, does not necessarily mean that you inherit that education. There may be Circumstances which will help you to acquire or acquire education, but that does not mean that you are to inherit. This point is very important because we are used to a system of society where privileges were inherited. And education is the one of the first instances where we find that this inheritance based on the privileges is questioned. And the democratic principles of inheritance, democratic principles of inheritance rather than based on the wealth that we possess or the resources that we possess that need to be 
looked into. And it is very important to note that, you know, the 20th century, one of the unique features of 20th century is that people live longer. A second quality associated with that, people spend longer period of time in schools and universities and colleges in the educational institutions. These two qualities make higher education and school education, the demand for school education and higher education very important and a growing demand, you know. Today, primary education may be a contracting sector, perhaps in Kerala, Karnataka and some of the states in India. But in general, if you come to the northern part of India, you find that it's an expanding sector. And higher education is an expanding sector everywhere. So therefore, you find that uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that the demand for higher education is an unending demand. It's a continuous demand that continues to expand. Although we may find that the type of education that we get, the type of skills that we uh, promote, and the type of employment that you are getting oriented to varies substantially, not only earlier, but even now. And it's a changing dimension that we are talking about. One of the unique features of this policy is that in 1968 education policy, the first one we had after independence, one of the unique features was that we talked about a uniform pattern, a comparable pattern of 10 plus 2 plus 3 system. And we continued with this policy or this pattern for the next 52 years, you know. After 50 years today, when you are talking about a new policy, new education policy of 2020, we are talking about a new pattern of education, 5 plus 3 plus 3 plus 4 system of education. It's a substantial difference that you are talking about. When I say that, this underlines the fact that learning is good and it should start early and we should live longer in the educational system. Now, one is talking about school education from 3 to 18 years, three, three, uh, from, the year of, uh, from the age of 3 to 18 years. That is something that you are talking about. And we also talk about the way in which it is to be reorganized. You know? this, is a, this process has a lot of implications for educational system and how does it reorganize itself is a challenge. So one of the first points that I would like to make is that this policy talks about readiness. Let me underline this point. It talks about school readiness by extending education to early childhood education. It talks about uh, college readiness by ensuring that those who are getting into the college will be understanding the basics. It talks about employment readiness. But it does not talk about employment and unemployment. I'll come to it at a later stage. So this readiness, school readiness, college readiness, and employment readiness, you know, these are the three dimensions of readiness that this policy is talking about. And these are a lot of implications when you are talking about new education policy. The major contribution, as I mentioned, is this. So if you take early childhood education, this was also something that was emphasized during the Samagra Shisha Abhiyan that we started a little earlier before the release of the policy. And what one finds is that there are different ways in which daily childhood education is provided in India. This is a sector which is uh, dominated by the private sector, perhaps not even organized sector, perhaps not even formalized sector, perhaps not even a recognized sector, you know. But this is the sector that provides early childhood education and major share of early childhood education is in the private sector. So when the government is trying to make this as part of the RTE, 
And when the government is trying to emphasize that the extension of education from age 3 to 18, where early childhood education is taken into account, the question that is to be posed is that what will be the responsibility of the public authorities and what will be the responsibility of the public funding? What will be the additional investment that the public authorities are willing to make when compared with the, the faulty sum that is invested now? It is not only that. Now this, what we call as the pre-primary education, early childhood education is scattered by in different you know, different ministries. What will happen to this coordination between these ministries and that is something that is to be taken into account. There are four modes or strategies that you are talking about. One is the standalone Anganwadis. The second one is that Anganwadis co-located with the primary schools. Then pre-primary sections co-located with the primary schools and standalone pre-primary schools. You know, These are the four ways in which the policy tries to see that the this extension will be provided this will be extended to early childhood education. But other than providing a framework, we cannot live only on the basis of the advice or a policy statement unless there is a public investment, a concerted effort to, to see that bridges are made between the existing educational institutions and the Anganwadi systems. We will not be in a position to move ahead and reach this area or reach this target of uh, universalization of early childhood education. It's one, one of the dimensions that I will like to emphasize is how much the state is willing to invest. I'm making this point. I'll come to the role of the state at a later stage, but still I want to pose the question that in 1968 policy, we said that 6% of the GDP will be spent on education. In 1986, we said that we will spend 6% of our GDP. In 2020, new education policy also we repeated the same. But in 52 years, we are not reached even 80% of or 75% of the promises that we made 52 years ago. So therefore, it is very important when you are taking additional segments of education system or additional segments of the education sector, what is the commitment that will be made by the public authorities to invest heavily in the early childhood education? And what are the organizational arrangements that are envisaged to ensure that every child from the remote rural areas to the urban areas and to marginalized groups and disadvantaged groups are getting admitted to this. Because it is important that the learning levels of many children and the adjustments to the school system are also related heavily with uh, the experience of early childhood experiences. So therefore, uh, while appreciating the uh, possibilities of extending education and uh, RTE especially, from three, age 3 to 18, one also needs to look into the financial burden and the, how the government is trying to resolve that issue. The second issue that I like to focus on is that when, you, when we are talking about the gross enrollment ratios in higher education or in the school education will be made 100%, 100% school, schooling, 100% gross enrollment ratio by 2030. And and 50% gross enrollment ratio in higher education by the year 2035. I will not come to the second part that is dealing with higher education. I will focus only, mostly with the school education. Now, the point is that if you look at the school education system at different levels, we find that at the primary level, 95% of the children are already in the schools, age group children. And if you look at the upper primary, nearly 90% is already there. 
at the secondary level it comes down to 79% but the most and the biggest hurdle is higher secondary education which has only 55 to 56% gross enrollment ratio and therefore once we go up in the ladder of education what we find is that gross enrollment ratio is automatically coming down so this is systematic trend that we find you know this moves in the opposite direction the levels of education and gross enrollment ratios you know they move in the opposite direction this has a lot of implication this has a lot of implication when you are talking about achieving 100% of the ger by the year 2030 because we have to identify the areas or the localities where priorities are to be accorded even when we say that in general 56% of the students in the uh, 56% of the age group children are in the higher secondary schools in uh, all india as an all india average one has to see that if you look into jharkhand the higher education is only the higher education gross enrollment ratio is only 48% and if you take karnataka a state like karnataka where our it capital which is our it capital it is only 41% and if you take nagaland or some of the northeastern states it's only less than 30% but if you come to uh, states like tamil nadu or kerala etc it is more than 80% you know so in other words even the same target how do we achieve the target is a second type of issue in the sense that some states are put adequate or added emphasis on this target whereas other states are little relieved of little relaxed can be slightly more relaxed so the question is that how do the state Uh, strength or the state mobilization of resources i don't mean financial resources resources to be put and what should be the prioritization process that is taking place that brings me to another issue because i talked about the role of the state the private aided sector and private unaided sector or in other words private sector is a growing sector in india whereas you find that in the public sector there is a decline in enrollment especially at the primary level and upper primary level you are to find is that uh, the private sector is a growing sector there are two type of changes that we find in india one is a demographic decline and as a result of the child population is declining especially in some of the states the second one is that there is a transition or move away from the government schools to the private schools you know these two trends are very important in the school level and this has a lot to do with the expectations regarding learning levels the expectations regarding quality of education and not saying that english medium and cbse are indicators of quality but what is a, what is a social perception you find that in when we go to the state level and sit with the people the question that is being asked every time is that english medium education and cbse syllabus now i am told that in some of the states which i don't want to name i don't want to name any of the states that is prepared in a national seminar or in an international seminar in some of the states people say that there is a reverse flow of students from the private unaided english medium schools to state schools especially in grades 11 and 12 and i am told that grade inflation is one of the most attractive propositions whereby the students are guided to this since admissions to many of the colleges are based on the uh, percentages that you secure you know so one of the issues that i have a major concern in education especially in school education in india is the learning levels you know let me start with a provocative statement one thing that i fail to understand one thing that i fail to explain with all my experience limited experience in the field of education for our last 30 decades three uh, decades 30 years is the following many studies starting from our nepa study to ncert study to 
Asar study, all the studies have shown that at the primary level, in grade five, the children cannot learn, children cannot read even the text at the second grade or uh, texts which are provided second grade. Even simple sentences they fail to read and they cannot do any uh, addition and subtraction. Forget about multiplication and fraction, you know. This is the finding uniformly come across with the the 10th and 15th studies, you know. But when it comes to higher education and grade 12, what I find is that the past percentages are increasing. And we also find that uh, those who are securing more than 60% are also increasing, you know. This is a phenomenon which I fail to understand. And certainly I have no explanation it can be grade inflation if there is a grade inflation that is taking place because in some in some of the states the top ranger could not even answer when he, when she was interviewed on the tv she could not even answer the basic questions you know so there is a problem in education not only that a seemingly an illusionary nature of quality reflected through learning outcomes one of the important reasons that this grade inflation is that People want to see that their levels are better and the schools are competing to see that not only that all the students pass, but also everybody is getting more than 60%. And this is more so in the case of private schools because you have to attract the students and your income depends upon the uh, number of students who are coming and therefore keeping a credibility becomes very important. The public schools are by its uh, ineffective functioning are not much concerned about this uh, phenomenon. Not that they are not affected by that. And there is also a, a trend that we find in India is that if you can afford, you go to a private school. If you cannot afford, you go to a government school. So therefore, as a result of that, over a period of time, the government schools have become a place or a parking place or a place where you find that people from the disadvantaged groups and people from the poor families and people from the remote rural, students from the remote rural areas are getting over-concentrated. Or in other words, what I am trying to say is that the educational system, especially at the school level, is working as a CFV or a working as a screening device. And this screening device is very closely associated with the social, social status, you know. So we are replacing one type of screening through another type of screening and education becomes a screening device in many cases. How do we, in 1986 policy, the major emphasis was on first time the policy, unlike the 1968 policy, asked about inequalities. The inequalities rather than children coming to the schools, you know. Previously, the 1968 policy, we are talking about an expanding system. So therefore, the focus was more on bringing more children to the school. But in 1986 policy, it was realized that certain regions, certain localities and certain social groups are getting undue benefit and other, at the cost of others and therefore there is a different policy. But the basic difference between 1986 policy and NEP 2020 is that at that time we were talking about inequalities in access to schools, inequalities in access to higher education. But today we are talking about inequalities after you get into the school system. Or in other words, the variations are much more than or more, more among the children who are inside the system rather than those children who are outside the system and inside the system. 
somebody sarcastically remarks that if children are not learning what they are supposed to learn, what is the difference between those who did not go to the school and those who went to the school? And in the schools where you find that the schools which are well managed, whether it is private or public sector, what you find is that they are doing much better. One of the issues that concerns all of us is that you know. when we visit primary schools when we visit schools and ask the teachers etc what is the learning objective that you are trying to maximize perhaps that is the place where there is a lack of focus that is very important to notice you know so for example you find that in 1990s we had what is called as a minimum levels of learning and district primary education program in 1994 and 95 first time introduced a target learning achievement target as a planning target in india and a 25 percentage increment in the learning levels you know this was something which was very very important and you find that uh, this had a lot of implication to refocus on levels of learning that is very important so friends the conclusion from this part that i want to draw is that dundee century is that most countries have universalized schooling but they have failed to universalize learning so the challenge is that how do we move from universalized school system to a system of universalized learning you know that becomes a very important dimension of the growth that you are talking about now let me take another dimension take you to another dimension that you know now we talk about uh, standard setting in education and that is another way of looking at education so that the education that is received is assessed on a realistic ground which are comparable with the education that is received from other places now what you find is that education standards received is referring to descriptions of what students should know that means the content and standards and what students will be able to do the performance standards that means educational standards look into two dimensions one the content standards and the second one the performance standards how do we make assessment the new policy that is very important from that point of view about the new assessment mechanisms that it is talking about and new arrangements for accreditation that it is talking about and one of the important dimensions of the change that you are talking about is that in india we used to have component wise analysis or component wise contribution or component wise encouragement for improving quality that means first we said that the students are not learning because teachers are not trained then we all the teachers were trained <coughs> but what we find is that the students are not still learning then we said that that schools are not equipped well with uh, learning materials then we try to do through the operation blackboard strategy to create facilities within the classrooms but the children are not learning then we said that they do not have textbook so we introduced textbooks uniforms etc so crores and crores of rupees are invested in the different components but we see that what is constant in indian education is that students are not learning and what is variable in indian education is that you know we are investing crores and crores of rupees on certain selected components we fail to look at school as an unit we fail to look into different dimensions of school and its functioning not only the teachers but also the head teachers but also the students you know we fail to look into that similarly we fail to see that classroom is we have seen always that classroom is a homogeneous unit and when we get into the classroom especially in the remote areas in the rural areas what we find is that 
the children are very different the student diversity that we find even in the small schools you know is substantial so therefore we find that the seeing classroom as a uniform arrangement or a homogeneous unit or seeing components rather than school as a complete entity is something very difficult for us to understand and very difficult for us to change unless we understand this change so my important point is that we should see that cl- classrooms are not homogeneous units to the schools are not to be seen as separate entities but we should see that schools are a unit and that is the place where we need to give a lot of autonomy to our uh, school heads or school principals or somebody who is the head of the institution you know so a leadership is an influence and the basic difference between an influence or a leadership and a teacher is that the teacher is directly involved with the teaching learning processes but a head teacher or a principal of a school is not directly involved with the teaching learning processes he or she is an influence whereby others are improving or increasing their operational efficiency maximizing their outcome and maximizing their outputs you know therefore it is very important to see that how do we see schools as a unit now many schools in the remote rural areas we have around 28000 schools where the total strength is 30 student strength is 30 and the teacher there are only two teachers what type of management mechanisms what type of innovations that you talk about in these places where even the language of instruction is very difficult for the children to follow and under such circumstances it is very important to see that what are the specific programs and what are the specific measures that we adopt at the school level the school complex idea that is again talked about in the policy is one such effort to see that a, uh, around 5 to 10 schools within the distance of 5 to 10 kilometers will be seen and this will give a more resources not only financial resources but also teacher resources etc and that will help many institutions to become more active become more energetic and become more productive in the sense you know so therefore friends if i talk about this one of the most important dimension of educational development today is how do we come to a more equal levels of outcomes in terms of learning outcome and for that it needs a differentiated inputs we cannot have the same levels of input to get the same levels of outcome so therefore how do we differentiate and what is the mechanism by which we differentiate these inputs levels and the process levels to reach a level of more comparable i am not talking about equal educational outcomes more comparable educational outcomes friends let me end with a, a famous speech that was made by barack obama when he was uh, not a president he uh, one of his beginning speeches in 2004 when he was addressing the democratic national conference he said that you know what does america mean to people who are from the deprived groups who are from the black background or hispanic background or asian background he said that uh, a skinny boy with a funny name feels that he has a place in this country and that feeling is a feeling of welcoming that feeling is a feeling of belonging that feeling is a feeling of inclusion and therefore we have to talk more in terms of inclusive quality 
rather than quality of education based on a target that you put forward you know thank you i am finishing my time professor ganesh so i am stopping here thank you very much okay ganesh you have some questions for the uh, no, uh, because uh, we have uh, allotted some time after the panel discussion again for professor wergis if you notice so presently i must uh, i think on behalf of all of us here and the audience i must thank you professor wergis for uh, painting a beautiful canvas of the school education and you touched upon some very interesting point from the structure of the system to the resources that are needed for the system the characteristics of the system some uh, some very big challenges that are on the long the way but uh, you also ended beautifully uh, by that quote because i would say it was a message of hope that you have uh, uh, you have shared you know and ultimately human beings live on hope and faith and hopefully we will transform that hope and faith into smart work and hard work also so i will revert back to you come back to you guys i mean you have the schedule already which we have shared so i we would like to have your comments at the end of the panel discussion so uh, we will proceed with the panel discussion now i think dr vergis will be here and uh, he will join us i'm sure he will be as eager as everybody here Listen to the panelists. Yes. I also want to learn from others, so I'll be here. Yes. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Dr. Ganesh. Thank you, Dr. Vergis. Uh, your inspiring keynote address, thought-provoking insights, is really set the tone, as uh, Dr. Ganesh has said. For the discussion, come. We have uh, outstanding panelists who are going to be discussing uh, the most of the issues what's happening today. Let me have the proud privilege of introducing the distinguished panelists for this evening. Let me introduce. Start with the Chitra Guru Murthy, uh, Dr. Chit. Mr. Chitra Gurumuthi. Chitra Gurumuthi is Chitra Lekha Gurumuthi is an M.Sc. in Mathematics and M.Ed. started her career career as a teacher and retired as a Joint Commissioner. So she has seen every aspects of education and she was a Kendriya Vidyala Sangeetan and an autonomous organization of Ministry of Human Resources Development of Government of India. And she has been in the field for almost 33 years of service, including a tenure of Director Academic CBSE for four years. The CBSE experience, CBSE experience uh, established being at the affair, uh, at looking after all the affairs of the school functioning, several policy decisions, giving exposure at a national and international level under a platform of different things really give us, and that insight is going to have tremendous value for the discussion this evening. Very warm welcome to uh, Chitra Gurumuthi joining us uh, from Kochi, and we are really looking forward to your insightful uh, uh, views on the new education policy. Let me have the privilege of also introducing Dr. Gayatri Deepak. Dr. Gayatri will be another distinguished panelist for this evening. Uh, Gayatri Deepak is uh, is an educationist committed to the best practices in education, who strive to enable schools to evolve into learning communities that foster excellence through individual and social changes. Gayatri also doctoral degree in the field of curriculum and cognitive development. She also has a qualification from the University of Cambridge in teacher. training uh, in the executive coaching and uh, she is also uh, very passionate uh, about empowering educators to become effective practitioners and pro thought leaders and about empowering the children teenagers and young adults to realize the true potential to blossom into responsible thinking caring and empathetic individual very warm welcome to gayatri i think we are also looking forward to a great insight being a specialist in the field of private school let me have the privilege of now welcoming professor rishikesh professor rishikesh uh, teaches in the school of education ajim premji university 
and leads the hub of education law policy located at the university. His research interests are uh, in the domains of educational policies, assessment, and teachers' education. For the last couple of years, uh, education policy related to issues has formed the core of education's work and is uh, on various governmental advisory committees on issues concerning the education, particularly in his uh, in his domicile uh, state of uh, Karnataka. And he is also uh, <clears throat> very strong. Uh, he's also got a very strong view that integration of sports into mainstream of education curriculum, particularly at school level, and hence is optimistic of the recent curriculum uh, reformed by the CBSE and has written about it, Teachers Plus magazine and uh, other number of issues. And he's also one of the total contributors to the new education policy, being one of the author in the committee uh, which has really drafted the entire thing. Last, not the least, let me have the proud privilege of welcoming today uh, our moderator for this evening, Dr. Ellis Ganesh. Dr. Ellis Ganesh, uh, for MS, for the for the audience of MMA, doesn't need introduction. He's very, very popular uh, with MMA members and people who are watching from this part of the country. Ganesh is a graduate in 1997, uh, B honors from mechanical engineering from Bits Pilani and uh, Rajasthan. He's also received his MTech in maintenance engineering and management uh, and Indian Institute of Technology, uh, Madras. And his research work uh, involved the application of time series forecasting model and system dynamics uh, concept to educational planning in Tamil Nadu schools and received his PhD. So there could be not be a better person than Dr. Ganesh to moderate this one of the important aspects this evening. And since 1987, he's worked uh, industrial engineering and management faculty. And uh, he's been, uh, we have been closely associated with Dr. Ganesh being head of the department of department of management studies uh, and thing. And in addition to education, he's also a versatile uh, singer, accomplished rock, blue star and uh, blues and also jazz vocalist and rhythm guitarist. And he has won a number of medals and awards. Uh, uh, and he also strongly believes in uh, meditation and philosophy, music and dreaming. He also strongly believes that India and Indians have an exceptional capabilities that require well-directed and intensely focused organizational effort to enable them to fully follow the result in inspiring, peerless, and timeless achievement. And we have a very, very distinguished panelist and a great moderator. And also at the end of the session, uh, Dr. Varghese also kindly joined us. Uh, welcome again to each one of the panelists and welcome to all the viewers watching this program live. And uh, I know today we had only 100 capacity in our Zoom because our main Zoom got uh, it got blocked. I don't know we had some serious issues. But all the viewers are joining us on other social media portals like uh, YouTube, Facebook and things. So there's no denial, there's no disappointment to anybody. So you can send your questions by WhatsApp as I mentioned to you. Now I'll hand over the session to Dr. Ganesh to take it forward. Over to you, Dr. Ganesh. Uh, thank you very much, Group Captain Vijay Kumar. Uh, uh, good evening, Namaste, and Vanakkam. Uh, I always believe that the five beating is useful, the international, the national, and, and the local. Um, very happy to have been invited here. I'm grateful to MMA for having given this opportunity and also to connect with uh, uh, the wonderful panelists and to Pro Professor Burgis. Uh, very often in my interactions with students, I'll just take a couple of minutes and then we will get on with the panel discussion. Uh, I've asked students the questions, do you want India to be a prosperous country? Often the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, nobody says no, obviously. Do you want India to be a progressive country? Again, the answer is a loud yes. 
and I ask, do you want India to be a peaceful country? A very big yes. Then I tell them logically, this is very difficult to achieve. The status of being a prosperous country, a progressive country, and a peaceful country is extremely difficult to achieve if India is not a powerful country. So it's very, very critical for us to look at that aspect. When I say power, I, I mean dharmic power. That's something that our traditions have placed us on. It has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do with our status as human beings, as thinking human beings, as compassionate human beings, and people who look forward to certain truths of life. I start from the big picture. Education, as we all know, leads to two broad outcomes. One is competence, which comprises knowledge and skills. Uh, one has to do with the mind, the other has to do with the combination of the mind and the body. You have mental skills and physical skills. The second component, which is very critical in my opinion, is character, which consists of values, you know, morals, habits, and the revealed behavior, and so on. And I believe that we have to focus a lot on the combination of competence and character that we have to produce. I think Dr. Berghese's point that we have to look for equality in learning was a fantastic starting point. Do we actually, uh, you know, achieve or realize the outcome of equality in learning, independent of the variety or heterogeneity in our classes? I mean, this is a challenge that all of us in the teaching community have to take head on. We have to take that head on because of the first three questions I asked. Do you want India to be a prosperous country, a progressive country, and a peaceful country, and a powerful country? Let us not forget for a moment that the foundation is laid even as early as the preschooling stage, which Dr. Vergi started off with, with young bodies in the preschooling stage. The foundations are laid there. I'm sure all of us with small children in our families are engaged in our own challenges of building character in those children. Because ultimately, the dynamic of character and learning can be a very, very strong dynamic. And if you are able to strike it rich, I think we will do very well. We also must not forget that whether anybody likes it or not, we are living in a world of competition. This you cannot wish away, however much one may want to wish it away. The fact is we are living in a competitive world, but we can make it very healthy competition. Okay? In fact, even within the education system, I can assure you there is severe competition there is severe competition to get the best students in. There is severe competition to get the best faculty in. There is severe competition to get financial resources in. So you, you cannot push it away. And we all know that education is a system with long cycle of outcomes. So this is one background I thought I would share with the audience. And then we get on to the panelists. So I have posed three questions to the panelists a priori, you know, before we started the panel discussion. Okay. And I gave them a background about the guiding principles that we must be bothered about. We must consider accessibility, inclusivity, equity, pursuit of excellence, economy, quality, and so on. We are also bothered about curricula. You know? Now, whether we should have standardized curricula or we should have variegated curricula is also a, a policy question. You know? Teaching, learning, evaluation systems, and uh, the resources, the human resources, including leadership of our institutions. All of us know the impact that leadership in a school or in a college can have on the entire educational atmosphere and what the college does or the school does. The financial resources, the technology, infrastructure, material resources, the organizational and managerial resources, 
and of course the networks and relationships. Then of course we have the intangible resources. What about spirit? What about culture? What about institutional, academic, and administrative environment? Everything impinges finally on the learning that the child goes through in its own small way. Every one of these factors contributes. Okay? So the questions that follow are the following. I'll state the first question. To what extent does the new education policy reflect the guiding principles that we are talking about in the context of education, uh, in the context of the school education system? And in what ways does the new education policy differ from the previous one? And uh, I've requested the panelists to approximately respond in three minutes each to this question. Fortunately, uh, Professor Verghese's keynote address touched upon a difference between 1968 and 1986 and, and this policy, but that can be a very good platform for us to take off on. Okay? So please let me, I, I'm just taking turns and we'll run the three questions with, uh, we have three panelists, let's call them ABC. So I'll start with ABC and go BAC and then CAB, something like that, you know. So we'll shift the order. Okay? Uh, since uh, Rishi was a part and parcel of the new education policy, writing the policy, I will request Rishi to start off this response to this question. Thank you. Uh, Rishi, you have Ganesh. three minutes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor Ganesh. Uh, good evening to everyone. Uh, Dr. Vaghese, Group Captain Vijay Kumar, everyone else at MMA, and uh, my co-panelists, uh, Mrs. Chitra and Dr. Gayatri. Uh, so with regard to this particular question, Professor Ganesh has posed, uh, you know, when we look at as to what is it that uh, the NEP 2020 is addressing, uh, it would be very useful for us to reflect back upon what Dr. Verghese uh, presented to us in his uh, keynote address. Uh, he put out uh, the key issues that uh, we've had uh, with regard to our education ecosystem. And uh, one of the key issues is, in fact, with regard to the exclusivity, I may say, within uh, the classrooms, within the school, uh, with, in fact, uh, students or children who have already an access. And that, I think, is a very crucial uh, issue that we, uh, as a country, face. That is, even though we have uh, more than 100% in terms of the GER at the elementary level, when you look at the middle of the elementary level at grade five and see as to what is it that the children have been able to learn, uh, it is a very dismal picture that we get survey after survey. So the NEP 2020 is, I think, the biggest uh, provision is in terms of uh, identifying what the root cause for this is and addressing that. And that, I would think, is really the huge input that NEP 2020 is making, uh, which is with regard to the early years. And that is the reason why, in fact, there is the structural change. And uh, considering the early years from age three to age eight, which would be corresponding to the current nursery to the current grade two, and calling that as the foundational stage. In fact, even in the chat box, there was this question as whether ECE has been addressed adequately. Well, how it has been addressed is by looking at these five years as the foundational stage and suggesting that everything needs to change here. Everything from the way we currently do. For instance, the current pre-primary, almost every single pre-primary, be it the Anganwadi or the private pre-primary, do pre-primary in a manner that uh, it should not be done. 
because the way we do it is uh, an apt system to create robots. We create uh, robots from the time that children start entering our formal schooling environment. So when child comes in at grade three, we first thing we ask the child is to put its finger on its lip and listen. And this we continue for 15 years, 18 years. In fact, in many places, even in the higher education, they're just taught to listen. So once they come into the work world, all that they would be able to do is follow orders. But no fresh thinking, no innovation, no creativity. And in this 21st century, if we bring children out of our education system, having trained in that manner, well, the society is going to fail. Dr. Verghese made the other very important aspect of education being also for individual capacity and capability development, as well as for a societal requirement. What kind of a society have we envisaged? What kind of a society that our constitution speaks of, which Professor Ganesh alluded to when he spoke about the principles, right? a society wherein we respect each other, wherein we love each other, wherein we want to live in peace and harmony, and wherein we want to progress together. Now, if that is the kind of society, then we need to have those skill sets amongst us. And that is the skill set that the education system is supposed to provide. And I think the policy very beautifully does it by creating the foundational stage wherein the way in which it speaks about the pedagogy, that is the approach, and the changes in the curriculum, which will have to be very flexible, which will have to be in tune to what the children are most uh, equipped to learn. So there is a playway method that is spoken of. There is a joyful environment that needs to be created. And there will be a multilingual environment wherein we know today due to neuroscience research that we are capable as human beings of learning multiple languages when we are young. And the other fact is also that when we learn more languages, there is a stronger cognitive development that happens. So NEP 2020 very beautifully takes up all this research that has happened over the last three decades since our previous policy and puts it into our foundational stage. And uh, I would think that this is one of the most important and uh, very, uh, very different from what we've done so far uh, in terms of our policies. And uh, I think, uh, Professor Ganesh, this would be my response uh, to your first question in terms of you know, what the difference is and what does it do very well with regard to that's, uh, that was very parsimonious, uh, Rishi. Thank you very much. You know, minimum words, maximum meaning, as they say. Uh, it was very nice because you have talked of the structural intervention made in the new policy of uh, going into the first early stage of education, you know, as the foundation stage. I think that's a very interesting change because very often when we want to make fundamental changes, it's good to look at the foundation and you've gotten that point. I go over to Chitra next and request Chitra to share her views. The question was, to what extent, Chitra, do you feel that the new education policy reflects the guiding principles of school education? Now, you all know that you're immersed in the school system, Chitra. You're, you're probably one of the persons in the panel who's completely immersed in the school system, you know. And in what ways does it differ? I, I think we need not focus on the difference now, since uh, both Professor Verghese and uh, Rishi have brought out at least one strong difference. But if you have anything else, please do focus on that. So over to you, Chitra, please. Thank you, sir. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, I'm sharing the screen. I hope all of you are able to see my screen. Yes, clear. I'm, Go ahead. Today we have a yeah. question before us. Is a new policy of education a boom, bane, or what? I would like to answer this by quoting Thiruvalluvar. 
பூசை குணம் நாடி குற்றமும் நாடி அவற்றுள் மிகை நாடி மிக்க கொழல் ரஃப்லி இட் டிரான்ஸ்லேட்ஸ் இன் டு வே த குட் அகெயின்ஸ்ட் த பேட் அண்ட் சூஸ் த ஒன் தட் அவுட் வேஸ் இட் இஸ் தேஃபோ இம்பார்ட்டன்ட் ஃபார் அஸ் டு அனலைஸ் த நியூ பாலிசி ஃப்ரேம் பை ஃப்ரேம் அப்ஜெக்டிவ்லி நாலேஜ் டைமென்ஷன்ஸ் can we do it in just one or two discussions very good clearly it's a big no because national education policy 2020 is co- comprehensive and also exhaustive so now let us therefore answer a few questions to start with what is the intent and aim of the policy what is new about it is it practical and implementable what i feel just as each child is important to a parent so is each learner to a teacher and each citizen to the country without a doubt don't we all know that education refines and improves performance the intent and aim of any educational policy should be therefore all inclusive with respect to access achievement creating optimal human resources that could contribute to national development and progress in the global scenario the guiding principle therefore i would like to quote national curriculum framework 2005 it should be nurturing an overriding identity informed by caring concerns within the democratic polity of the country now why do we need a new policy when i read through the previous policies especially the 1986 policy currently running in the country and its extensions they are not at all lacking in intent and purpose but there are two important areas that make the new policy more holistic and relevant one early childhood care and education ecce and two higher education ECCE has been conceived in all its dimensions by the task force of national education policy 1986-2 and it has further been refined by the national curriculum framework 2005 focus group but then what went wrong they did not include it in an organized sector they gave it to random players who administered an unscientific curriculum and the result no learning or de-learning when the child entered the mainstream education but the new education policy has taken a major step towards this by integrating ecce with the mainstream in higher education too certain concepts were brought out in the new education policy 1986 such as de-linking higher education degrees from job and manpower planning which they envisage will lead to job specific courses but have these been realized then why youth of today have several paper degrees totally irrelevant for useful employment does the new policy offer anything in this direction yes there is a concept of multidisciplinary universities can it be aligned with the integrated four year secondary a question if answered will take the country way ahead for the next round of discussions i would like to enumerate the following i would like to take up the potential in the new policy to address the great divide between schools and universities expanding interministerial cooperation accountability for education for life and living 
exploring international models for systemic adaptation, language policy, what could be added? Then teacher education, differential models, how effective can we make it? With this, I'll meet you in the next round. Thank you, sir. Thank you, everyone. Close the screen share. Sorry, I'm very sorry that was went on mute. Uh, thank you, Chitra, very much. That um, re reflected the emotion that you had in the system. It was wonderfully done because you struck on specific challenges, and particularly you also alluded to this integration of the early childhood care and education, and also tried to link the higher education. The last slide was brilliant, you know, because you took it, you looked at the whole thing from a systemic angle as to what should be done outside the schooling system to have meaning in the schooling system. Thank you very much. And obviously, we look forward to more inputs. Also very happy that you, uh, you, you focused again on the early childhood uh, care and education aspect, which both Professor Burgess and Professor Rishikesh had also touched upon. So there, there seems to be something interesting in that space. I'm sure a lot of questions will come from the audience on, about that space, because it is definitely new. So I agree. Uh, I would like you to answer that question. To what extent does the new education policy reflect the guiding principles in the specific context of the school education system? Yeah. Over to you, Gayatri. Mike? Yeah. Gayatri or Mike? Unmute. Unmute yourself, madam. Yeah. Uh, very good evening to everybody here, including the distinguished panelists and um, the chief guest and all our guests over here who are attending. Uh, thank you very much um, for this opportunity to share. Um, I am screen sharing. I hope that's visible and I'm going to... Is my screen visible? Yes. Right. Okay. Um, already much has been said about um, what are the major changes between the last policy and this one and why the changes have happened as well. Um, so one uh, very important point, um, which actually did come about from Dr. Verghese was the focus right now has shifted from not just enrolling students, but actually to ensure equity and access. Uh, and an excellent point was about uh, not just looking at quality of education, but the inclusive quality of education. Absolutely wonderful. Um, and I would say that the inclusion is not just about including uh, students uh, of different diverse needs and diverse abilities and competencies. But I think this policy has also looked into um, including schools which are very, very diverse, including the top private schools, um, the government schools, as well as schools which are the affordable private school sector. I think the school has touched upon um, every kind of school as well, though you wouldn't actually see it in explicit terms. But if you read between the lines, I think that is evident. So I do look at a, a couple of, um, I would say, let's say three, four running themes right through the policy. One, I would say, is flexibility. The other, I would uh, actually say, is choice. Uh, a lot of importance given to student choice and the multidisciplinary nature of education. So one um, other thing that I would like to emphasize is, uh, like what the other uh, panelists also mentioned, though it starts from the foundation stage, putting emphasis on the foundation stage, 
so that we actually catch the young um, minds early, it also dovetails very smoothly right up to university level. And we do have these running themes right through. Um, so I think that's, that's been beautifully laid out. So it's not talking just about um, getting children in. It's not just talking about how do we get the weakest section of the population socioeconomically disadvantaged in, but it's also talking about how do we ensure quality, not just at school, but right through. Um, so it also talks about a holistic curriculum, about um, catering to the holistic development of a child, about all the emotional, social, cognitive uh, needs of a child, as well as values and ethics. So I think that's very important. It has touched upon um, culture, language, as um, Professor Rishi mentioned earlier. Uh, it's about experiential learning. It's about immersive learning. I think that is a very important theme that we can see right through. And the importance given to the vocational stream of education as well, so that the purpose for which people enter uh, is to actually make them uh, skills ready. Uh, Professor uh, Vergis earlier talked about readiness. I think that's another running theme right through. So it's, I think that it has actually touched upon these themes and carried that right through. That's a very unique feature of this policy. Um, I would also, I think we can just focus on a few things, which uh, as an end user, I would call myself an end user. Um, I'm not in the government, not, in the poli not a policymaker, obviously, but very much an end user working with schools and trying to enable change and enable positive change. Um, so yes, there are some of these uh, changes that uh, did appeal to me. Uh, one of the important changes which uh, the other speakers touched on was the change to the format itself, uh, which again, it's not just it's not just for namesake that it's been changed. If you read the policy, it actually refers to uh, the different pedagogic, pedagogy styles that should be used, the learning styles that should be used in each stage, um, and the kind of subjects that can be introduced, the kind of learning and the teaching that can be done at every stage. Um, and yes, one important change is that the curriculum has become, it will become conceptual, it will be competency based, and therefore we look at performance standards. Uh, uh, and yes, hopefully when we implement, that's going to be contextualized. Uh, the policy does allow also for contextualization. Um, uh, you can see this on the slide, like um, the importance given to vocational education right from grade six to eight. No um, a hard separation. This is a very key point, which we can touch upon later, I'm sure, in the discussion. No hard separation of curricular, co-curricular, extracurricular, vocational subjects, even flexibility in board exams, which I think is a splendid uh, point that's been made. Um, and this has been linked to teacher education as well, raising the quality of teacher education, qualifications, as well as teacher training and CPD, continuous professional development for teachers. And the best part is, this has been made um, um, according to the teacher's choice that the teacher can choose what CPD she wants to do, not a top-down approach. I think all these are absolutely splendid points that have emerged, and I would say these are key differences as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Gayatri. That was very comprehensive. You touched on various aspects, but I would say um, that's a single strong message that you've sent us, a very good integration of the system from the pre-primary stage across. You know, that was a wonderful point. And they have integrated it structurally in terms of the contents of the curricula and many other aspects. Of course, there is one question that will obviously arise in the minds of many people in the audience and even others connected. 
if such a transformation is expected of the system including the structural transformation what are the implications for transforming teachers you know this is going to be a massive challenge transforming teachers across the system we will revisit that question perhaps a little down our panel discussion but i think we will flag that question because the policy obviously requires massive scale of teacher transformation you know and also a systemic transformation to support the teacher that's very very important how do we build systems that are supportive of the teacher and also the relationship between the parents and the teachers for the benefit of the child and the children you know so these are important things that uh, we will touch upon later so my second question and this time i would request chitra to go first okay so second question is what aspects have you observed to be very welcome in the nep's contents and what aspects would you suggest review and changes you know i mean as an educationist chitra i'm sure many people are eager for that kind of a, a critical review of the policy from a purely intellectual angle you know so what do you feel is most welcome and what do you feel would require review and changes yes sir again 3 minutes yeah yes sir thank you sir thank you yeah uh, again my screen screen is shared i suppose that is no problem yes yes now i am going to tell you what i like in the new education policy and what i would like to add as uh, dr ganesh has already posed a question to us i feel that the new education policy is a boon for early childhood care and education let us examine how it is as i told you that even in 1986 policies there were targets for the anganwadis uh, we are supposed to have 20 lakh anganwadis by 2000 year 2010 of course we are still lagging behind but in the country there are anganwadis there are balwadis there are day, day, day care centers play schools preschools etc but one thing about them is they are disjoint curricula as many as there are institutions no onus for any educational care some are exorbitant in cost now the new education policy by integrating it with the mainstream has tried to unify takes the onus of an appropriate curriculum for realistic development of the child now we all know that the right to education ensures the legally the right to education from the age 6 to 14 but now it extends to 3 to 14 hence it becomes the right to education act becomes more holistic the new education policy is also a boon for higher education let me uh, tell you how i arrived at this conclusion measures detailed by the new education policy one it awards credits for mid year completion okay, differential good. models for teacher education has scope to forge alliances such as education ministry with ministry for labor and employment already they have uh, put explicitly that the ministry for child and uh, child welfare and women should uh, should coordinate with, for ecce with education ministry the second one universities with schools workplaces with educational institutions and then viable international models for systemic adaptation but due caution should be exercised in allowing international players in higher education we can only adopt and adapt the core should be original to national roots then what is achieved by doing all this it ensures easy slide from schools to universities and universities to employment can plug the great divide between schools and universities provide for lateral entry and piecemeal vertical mobility a few probables i envisage from my experience 
just like medical colleges and hospital campuses, teacher education in school campuses, engineering colleges in allied workplaces, etc. Looking at the French model for an integrated education from 3 to 22, I did not say 18, 22, or any other that would materialize, the embryo at 3 emerging as a butterfly at 22, ready to take on the world at large with its challenges and opportunities, and not run from pillar to post in search of employment. Thank you. Very nice, Chitra. Again, very brilliant because you have shown that integration across the system. You know? And uh, there is one thing, maybe you can preserve the response. Um, I would really like you to uh, suggest also what should be reviewed and changed. You know? While you have posed the challenges very correctly, it's also important to look at what has been given to us on the table and what, as, uh, as a sincere educationist, you would feel requires a review and a change if feasible. So I'll come back to you on that. Okay. So this time I will request Gayatri to come next again. What about you, Gayatri? What do you welcome in this and what do you think calls for a review and a change? Gayatri, Mike, Mike. Yeah. Right. Um, I think there are a number of uh, welcome changes. Um, can you see again? You can see this. Yes. Right? Okay. Um, there are, I think, one good thing is about uh, the 360-degree descriptive report card, which um, has been suggested, because if you're going to report in a 360-degree way, that means it, you need to actually align with the teaching learning methods and also the ob learning objectives, uh, like Professor Varghese did point out earlier. Does the teacher actually know all this? Does she know how to align all this? And only then you can report. So when you're again talking about the end reporting, it's how you actually do what you say you are doing in class, right? So it's all about that. Um, again, is the when you're saying 360-degree reporting, has your uh, implementation been holistic? Has it been experiential for you able to be for you to be able to report on that? So I think that is a key thing which holds teachers accountable. So I think that's a very very positive change. Um, and and the other points like okay, learner-centric pedagogy. Um, the flexibility of choosing subjects, no hard separation, which we already mentioned. Um, the curriculum, very important thing to note is the reduced, the constant uh, uh, point about reducing the co content. Now, again, that might raise a question, oh, is that going to drop the standards? Because content right now is available at the touch of a button. You don't really need content. Students would be able to gather information, but it's about constructing knowledge. How do you construct that knowledge? Um, you need to make that knowledge that is available to them conceptual. Are you making it relevant by making all the subjects interdisciplinary? A wonderful uh, point was also about arts and sports integration. Um, are, uh, are your teaching learning methods encouraging application-based learning? So I think all these terminologies that are used actually set the stage for what has to happen in um, transacting the curriculum in schools. Um, and then the, the beauty of it is actually the pedagogy that comes in. Uh, for want of a better word, I'm going to use the word pedagogy here. Uh, but actually, it's not about teaching at all. It's all about learning, right? Um, so if you want to encourage learning to learn, uh, you will have to enable that to happen in the classroom by allowing the freedom for children to actually think, for, for the freedom for children to be able to express the ideas. So to be able to do that, first of all, 
um, the training that needs to happen for uh, teachers, which you mentioned earlier, needs to be on their own mindsets. We'll come to that a little later, I hope. Uh, but again, this training in the pedagogy itself is a very, very important aspect because such beautiful terminology has been used, like inquiry-based learning, discovery learning, uh, and encouraging discussions and questions. Questions are not from the teacher to the child, but rather encouraging children to ask the questions. A story-based uh, learning, which is, again, a beautiful concept, so uh, innate to our culture in India. So I think all this is absolutely remarkable, and I welcome all these uh, um, positive uh, points in the uh, the curriculum, uh, I mean, sorry, in the policy document. Um, another important aspect um, I would really say is very, very welcome is the positive changes in the assessments itself, which is all about reducing pressure and also celebrating learning. Assessments are all about allowing the student to actually express what they've learned and not about constantly judging the child for what he has not learned. Um, so again, these are about uh, um, assessments being actually um, authentic assessments, uh, also based on learning outcomes, both within the school, as well as uh, whether it is board exams. A quality uh, measure that has been put in is about um, end of um, uh, end of year assessments or exams in grades three, five and eight as well, which is to monitor the schooling system to see how effective that is rather than uh, judging the students on their on their performance. Um, yes, the introduction of Parak is another very welcome measure. Uh, the most important thing I would say, which is about uh, reducing stress, is about uh, the NTA offering a high quality common entrance exams to universities uh, in all subjects and not just for uh, professional uh, colleges. I think that's a very welcome change. Um, and look at these changes in the board exam itself. Um, again, I would say we are drawing a lot of parallels um, with international boards of education, as well as uh, university systems in um, entry into university um, in countries which are very developed, like the UK, US, or uh, perhaps in other European countries. Very welcome changes. It's all about how do parents and society, how are they really going to understand this? And it's up to us to actually create that awareness. Um, so it's about uh, um, reducing content, not, re not relying on rote learning, make, changing the structure of the exam itself, making it two parts, objective and descriptive. You would find this in uh, IGCSE exams. Uh, this is how it usually is. And in fact, uh, in the IB board or in the, uh, in the Cambridge board, you would also find that students uh, can take subjects at a higher and a lower level. Um, and the best part is also that they can take it twice now. If they take it twice, it's actually best of uh, the two um, exams uh, that uh, their final score is going to be based on. So I think that's, again, uh, putting the onus uh, for learning onto the student. It's not, uh, okay, this is one exam and you have to perform, but rather, okay, th there's a chance to improve yourself. And it's not about these compartment exams either. It's an on, uh, honest, genuine chance given to the learner to prove themselves. Um, I think all these, again, are very, very welcome, uh, uh, positive uh, uh, points over there. So I think I would I will stop here with um, uh, what are the points that I really do think are very very positive and welcome and which. Now, Gayatri, the other one. What do you think should would call for a review in your from an intellectual? Uh, sorry, uh, sorry. What, could you... what are the review? What aspects of the NEP, in your opinion, deserve a review and a change? Right. Okay. Um, there are, see, we, you did mention earlier, Dr. Ganesh, that uh, 
yes, uh, this is a competitive world. I totally agree with that. Uh, but then you also mentioned it has to be healthy competition. Yes. We have to reflect as individuals, as parents, as teachers, um, are we really fostering healthy competition in our society? Uh, so while the policy does say so much about reducing the stress, I do find at some points uh, there is a dichotomy within that and it's kind of reverting back uh, because I've seen this in action in schools and in some of the uh, the best schools, even if the school doesn't want to give op- open up the thing for Olympiads, I think here they're talking about national Olympiads. We shouldn't forget there are a number of pl- private players. In fact, there are private players which give awards to principals, right? To principals for enrolling their students in Olympiads. And sometimes the pressure comes from the parents. Uh, when I do uh, request the school and say, please do not open up so many, so many Olympiads, there are parents who do come back and ask, we want them, right? So, and this has happened. So I, again, it's all saying, okay, can my child perform, perform? Why should the child constantly um, dance to our tunes and actually show what he's capable of in terms of writing exams is something which uh, I feel we do really need to reflect on. Um, uh, when, when the board is, uh, when the policy is talking so much about reducing pressure, I do think this is a dichotomy with that. Um, and I do think coaching centers will flourish for this. And therefore, and you also see that point where this is linked to uh, entrance into universities, uh, where uh, premier institutions like IITs and NITs would be encouraged to use merit-based results from national international Olympiads. So when you're talking about the NTA giving, um, I don't understand this in entirety. So I'm just looking at it as a point which is given. And yes, if somebody else from the panel can throw light on it, to say, okay, uh, from what I see, I think this is going to this is going to lead to um, while one side you're reducing pressure, the other side I think it's actually adding to it in a different way. It's just a backdoor entry for pressure again to be placed on students. Um, and teachers will teach to the test. Okay, you say that you're reducing content in. Uh, Exams, these tests matter more and teachers are going to teach to the test again. Uh, this is my fear, uh, although the, the, the tests might be themselves very, very, very uh, conceptual based, competency based or whatever. Uh, still, it is possible to teach to the test. It's still possible to coach students intensively for it and again, increase the pressure on them. This is uh, my humble opinion in this regard. Uh, exams at the end of grade three, five and eight, very, very well intentioned. But again, um, I, I have even uh, um, people from the lower socioeconomic status already questioning uh, and asking me, um, Madam, why is this being allowed? My child, uh, I would like the child to be uh, happy going to school. Now the pressure is going to be on the child is what they, again, for a school to show that it's doing well, they're going to pressurize the child perhaps. So I think these are genuine concerns. Um, so I would say these could be reviewed and looked into. Because when we come to implementation, how is it going to be implemented? Uh, how is it going to work in reality is something which we need to actually check, where, even though it is well-intentioned. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. So, same question, Rishi. Thank you, sir. It, of course, you are a part and parcel of the policy, but still, I think uh, you can take an independent platform and come in. You know, what you welcome and what you feel should be reviewed and changed. Right, Madam. Close the screen, please. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yes. So, uh, Professor Ganesh, uh, uh, allow me to also talk about a few things uh, to add to what uh, Mrs. Chitra and Dr. Gayatri uh, spoke about, uh, you know, what's welcome. Uh, you know, of course, uh, with regard to the pedagogic uh, child-centric approach, 
uh, or breaking silos between subjects, assessment reforms have been touched upon. But uh, another couple of things which I think are very crucial for us to note. Uh, one is with regard to uh, the nutritious food being as important uh, in, in our education space. Right? So the policy uh, acknowledges that a large majority of our children who come into school, particularly the public schools, come in hungry. The first meal that they get is at noon, the midday meal. So it speaks about that midday meal itself being nutritious enough because for many children, that's the only meal, particularly in the disadvantaged areas. And uh, then it also talks about adding the breakfast component. I think that's a huge uh, point that the policy brings in. It has huge financial implications. So the government really will have to look for where it is going to get the funds for it. But there are states already showing the way. Uh, we have Tamil Nadu already doing some kind of breakfast. We have in Karnataka, for instance, milk being provided and some biscuits. Uh, we have Delhi wherein a breakfast component already is there. So we have states which have shown the way. I think uh, it needs far more central allocation so that uh, there are states which do it uh, in a genuine way because it is absolutely unimaginable that we have children coming in at 8.30 sitting in hungry uh, till the midday meal. So that I think is, is a very welcome one and we need to take it seriously and need to work uh, on, on that. Uh, the second uh, very welcome point I would say is the focus on strengthening the public education system. I mean, we all know that there is no society in this world uh, which has developed and matured uh, without public education system. Uh, so strengthening public education system is the right focus. The policy has made a choice here. There are lobbies which are pushing for vouchers, school choice, and a variety of other, I would say, you know, middle class thinking, because we in the middle class have this fanciful ideas of giving vouchers so that they all can go to the private schools without realizing that more than 90% of the private schools are these low fee private schools, which we have no idea of. They run out of terraces, rented buildings without playgrounds, right? So that is the private school wherein most children getting out of the government school go to. They don't go to these elite or the missionary schools, which have a certain quality. So the strengthening of public education system, and uh, again, once again, saying a minimum of 6% of the GDP, I think is a very important provision. As Dr. Burgess was saying, we've been talking about 6% since 66. So, but then, you know, are we going to walk the talk? But well, at least uh, the policy says that we need minimum of 6%. In fact, a draft policy said we should look at enhancing the current 10% of the government expenditure to 20% over a period of 10 years. It took a very pragmatic position there. So anyway, this whole focus on the requirement of finances to improving quality is another very important provision. Um, the third one uh, I would talk about is the school complexes. Uh, Dr. Verghese again alluded to it, and that's a very, very crucial one, particularly for our education ecosystem. You know, currently we have schools which have emptied out also because of lesser population in some places, wherein we have about 20 children, uh, you know, uh, in some places even 10 children uh, across five grades, sometimes across eight grades, you know, just about 20, 25 children. Now, even law, which is the right to education, uh, provides for only two teachers. So, you know, you should not have single teacher schools, but then in, in a school which has children across five classes, but only 20, uh, even the law says two, two teachers, because that is what is affordable. You can't have five teachers for 20 children. It is unaffordable, even probably in rich countries, right? So now what do we do with this? Of course, there are some states which have taken this 
position or a stand that we will shut down these schools. We will get these children to move to a closer school which has more children. Now, that's not really an equi- you know, a, a decision which is inclusive because you're asking those children to move out of the villages and go somewhere else. And uh, it's fine if you are asking that of a middle school child. But then what about a young primary school child who's just come into the grade, first grade? Right? So that is where the school complex idea comes in, that there have to be these complexes which are very large. The center of these complexes would be the kindergarten to grade 12 schools, which 1,500 to 2,000 uh, children. And these complexes will have to be networked with these smaller schools, wherein the smaller schools probably will have only the lower primary children, but then they can be then provided with special teachers. They could be sent maths teachers at least twice a week. They could be tend, uh, sent sports teachers at least twice or thrice a week. They could be sent arts teachers. They could be sent school counselors. Otherwise, these children will never get these facilities. So this idea of school complex is not a very new one. It's been there. Some people have tried it. But the way it has been described and to address the issue of uh, inclusivity right, and access. So that's, that's the other one. And finally, in terms of what is really uh, well thought out is this governance structure and the regulatory structure. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why a public education system has fallen apart is this overlapping of jurisdiction and, and the roles within the system. Uh, you know, we have the block education officer who's supposed to be the owner of the public schools, also vested with regulating the private schools. Now, all his focus and concentration is in regulating the private schools, in many cases, not even allowing the good private schools to perform well, right? But at the same time, where not-for-profit education should have been the basic principle, we have commercialization of education. So the BU has neither done that regulating well and nor has the public education system flourished. So that is what really the policy is saying that please let's separate this. Let the Department of Education be concerned with improving the quality of the public education system. That has to be their job. They need to own that. And the accountability of public education system rests with the education department. So how do you then regulate? How do you make sure that private schools are not commercial entities? And as per law, they're not for profit. You need to have a regulatory body which will have the same provisions for all schools. Right? So that's another one which I think is very welcome. It is in detail for those of you interested uh, in knowing as to how the policy suggests this. Right. Uh, and then with regard to uh, you know, what I would think are the concerns or which could have been and should have been different, a uh, couple of points. The first thing is the right to education uh, expansion has not been spoken of in the policy. The draft policy recommended it, but the policy is silent about it. Uh, so I think that is something that the policy needs to uh, bring in through some kind of a change later on during the review. Uh, right to education should expand both ways. Currently, it's 6 to 14. It should move below to grade 3, and then it should move about to grade 18. And when we talk of right to education, for most people, uh, you know, they think only of the 121C provision, which is 25% admission into private schools. Well, we have 33 other provisions. So that's not the provision that we need to be focusing on. It is basically ensuring that there is free and compulsory high quality education available for every single child between 3 to 18. And that, I think, has to be legalized. Currently, I think they've shied away from doing that given the economic turmoil that we are in. But hopefully when finances improve, uh, we need to expand right to education. Uh, the other thing which I think it should have come into the policy is this clarion call for the no detention policy. Uh, it has been reviewed uh, and I think RT has been amended. The states have been uh, allowed to decide whether they can fail a child. Uh, failing children is a system that comes 
you know, from the industrial era, we moved on. I mean, you can't fail children, particularly the primary school children. You can't fail them because if a primary school child is not learning, a child five years, eight years is not learning, the onus is on the adult around the teacher, the, everyone else around, it's not the child. So you can't penalize a child by detaining the child because you're hitting at the confidence of that child. That child is not going to do any better because you've not taught the child. And just by failing it, you're expecting you to again teach the same child, which you could not teach, right? So there is absolutely foundational and fundamental problem with no, with detention. So one has to bring back the no detention very clearly. Uh, I think Dr. Gayatri alluded to this class three, five and eight assessments. Again, in the policy, it's very clear. These are assessments to check the health of the system. But then we as a society, we as an education system, do we realize that? Do we understand that grade three, five and eight are not exams to fail children? It's only to check whether how well you are doing, right? So that I think has to be much clearly spoken of. The spirit of those assessments is very different. It's not the way we do assessments. I think there's something uh, one needs to look at. Um, the next point is with regard to teacher education. Uh, we have given that the policy gives 10 year time span by which time the recruitment would be only from teachers who have done the four year integrated program. Now by 2030, 10 years, I think it's too long. It should have said immediately shut down the DA. DA is absolutely poor quality qualification for someone who is going to mold uh, young individuals. And so it has to be immediately four-year integrated BA. Those who are there in the system, they could be provided certain certificate courses. And of course, they will have to continue till they retire. But then very immediately, it should have been that because there are colleges, there are RIEs, regional institutes of education, which offer four-year programs. There are the 10, 12 colleges in Delhi University, which offer four-year programs. So one could start recruiting from that. That should be the only place that you recruit teachers from. Um, finally, the last two uh, one is I would uh, think that uh, the medical and law uh, professional courses have been left out of this liberal arts multidisciplinary framework that uh, Mrs. Chitra was alluding to. Uh, they should have been brought in. There have been, I guess, lobbies and pressure groups which have worked to, to keep the medical uh, professional degree and the law degree out of this. They need to come in. Doctors need to be studying literature. They need to be understanding and studying social studies. Right. And so uh, should lawyers be. I don't know why they have been left out uh, in any multidisciplinary environment across the world. Everyone studies in the same liberal arts framework. And uh, finally, uh, I think the policy misses out on something very crucial uh, because every stakeholder needs to understand as to what is the basic idea around which all these provisions are based. And I think parental communication or communication to the outside society that needs to go in as a movement. There has to be a campaign mode for that. And policy should have mentioned that right there. Now it's left to the government whether they're going to do it. Because otherwise, most people are going to be confused as to what is it that the policy is aiming at. I'll stop here. Thanks, yeah. Professor Ganesh. Thank you, Richie. Of course, you overshot time, but uh, you gave some very useful points. Sorry. Uh, so, no, it's all right. I mean, it happens, you know. Sometimes we get soaked so much that there is a lot of the heart coming out. So, it's, it's fine from that perspective. But we'll have to continue now. Um, uh, one comment that I thought I'll share with you at the stage very briefly is uh, it's time that we looked at educational expenditure from a different perspective and keep calling it educational investments for long-term good of the country. You know? So I think that's a big mindset change we, we need. You know, We should look at this expenditure as investments, actually, what we are making on ourselves, literally. Okay. So here's the third question. I'm starting with you, Rishi, and be very brief. What should be done to ensure effective implementation of the NEP? 
for the benefit of the schooling system. Please be very brief, uh, Richie. Yeah, so I will make up here, uh, you know, in terms of what extra time that I took uh, for my yeah. previous question. Sure. Uh, so I think in terms of uh, implementing, uh, you know, one of the key things that uh, will have to be done uh, is to uh, establish a task force. Um, I think a task force will have to be established, an implementation task force at the Ministry of Education, uh, as well as uh, state governments will have to implement the task force. There are a number of things that needs to be done to ensure the even the start of implementing the policy. There are many legislative uh, action that is required. Many rules, uh, bylaws have to be changed. So uh, an implementation task force is very, very critical. Um, and I think I'll, I'll stop here because once there is an establishment of an implementation task force, they will be able to take uh, decisions across, uh, you know, various ministries and departments that would be required uh, to implement this policy. Thank you. That was very, I think the combination was fantastic. Thank you, Rishi, for the second and third questions. I'll come to Gayatri. What do you feel, Gayatri, briefly? What should be done? At least what principles should be followed to ensure effective implementation? Right. Um, I think one of the most important uh, principles, I would say, is to foster a non-judgmental approach. Um, I'm not sure if you can, again, to move no. on to the next slide. Yeah, please go to the slide in case you have that. Because you are in the previous, uh, the, your slide now shows what could be reviewed. So maybe you That's can see. That's right. Yeah. Uh, There's a different okay. slide, maybe. Um, I'm just going to, so even if I don't show the slide, I'm just going to yeah, yeah, show sure. the, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, it's so, uh, I would actually think one of the most important things, which is going to be difficult, uh, even though you might have, uh, uh, several governmental bodies also regulating it and you can have a cascade effect where you train the trainer and they go and go into schools and actually do further training it is the spirit of the policy that needs to be captured, right? The kind of pedagogical techniques that have been suggested in terms of inquiry-based, discovery-based and all that, um, the student-teacher ratio, first of all, needs to be looked into. It could be 35 is to 1 in higher grades. It could be 30 is to 1 in primary grades, which is the recommendation now. But uh, in my um, personal experience, all these kind of techniques work best in the best of schools when you have when you don't exceed 25 okay if you really want to push it going into 28 so that's one point i think we really need to look into the principle that you asked about is uh, uh, actually adopting a non-judgmental approach towards students towards children uh, that is one principle I, I think needs to be instilled deeply in the teacher training uh, courses that happen. Um, that's a very, very important aspect. Like you did mention earlier, teacher training is going to be the, the crux of actually transacting um, this policy, which will then move into a curriculum, which then needs to go into schools. But contextualizing it is another very important point for implementing. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And to get that to, for people to understand, I think that's very, very important. For the educators, first of all, to understand. For school leaders to understand, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. More than the school leaders, I think it's the people who come from the board who need to understand that. And so it's, it's about uh, also connecting um, uh, the, the making learning really relevant to what is required 
what what does the university require what does industry require to actually to establish that connect and make that relevant to students as well as teachers to understand many times teachers themselves don't know where the child is headed um so that is a that is a genuine uh, concern so the teacher training needs to be that detailed um it's also i think um another good point would be uh, to rope in professionals to come in regularly to every school make that mandatory to come in and teach for a certain period of time also make it mandatory for um in service um, teacher trainees or uh, um uh, college uh, trainees from education departments as well as the regular college undergraduates who pass out of college to actually put in a year of service in schools it doesn't have to be uh, schools in rural areas or something like that wherever they comfortable give them the choice for one year of service i think that would really help our country moving forward um, like to put across Yeah. Uh, one sorry one more point i think there are some excellent schools um that do exist in our country not necessarily uh, very expensive schools i think in service training in these schools immersion programs in these schools for every uh, uh teacher education um, um student is a must uh where they actually learning and experiencing it because many of our teachers haven't experienced the kind of education this policy is uh, actually envisaging so it would really help to identify such schools and g- allow them to give some immersion programs thank you yeah those are very useful suggestions and a little off beat but very constructive uh, now chitra what do you feel should be the principles that we should adopt to ensure effective implementation right you want to close the screen she may use it yeah chitra your mic is also muted just check Chitra, your mic. Am am I am I uh, visible, sir? And yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Of course, I would like to react to all the questions put put forth by my panelists. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here, I would like to. draw an algorithm for implementation because i have spoken on a, a more of a theoretical and a, and a very very um, philosophical uh, you know i have given a philosophical connotation to the uh, policy uh, and and in, when you read my implementation of course it is very easy to say but to uh, make it materialize is not that easy so i am going to say how this can be materialized Uh, from a very layman's point of view i'm not going to, i'm not a policy maker i'm not i'm not in any government job now but from my own experience i feel that it is possible what yeah. i'm going to say though it may sound very very uh, it may be high sounding and it may be uh, it may not be looking down to earth as of now so let me put an algorithm for implementation as i have i have uh, understood the scope of education not just in the perspective of education policy because we are also suggest giving suggestions to the policy makers uh, the task forces which are going to be set up in the country for this uh, for rolling out this policy so just let us go through the uh, algorithm that i have presented here yeah sure uh, yes sure. so the mission is 100% enrollment across the age groups one is early childhood care 0 to 3 i am not leaving that out also education sector is 3 to 22 school school education and college education 3 to 22 and employment about 22 the guarantee should be complete 
we cannot simply deal with these things piecemeal at all if we start doing that always there will be pockets of excellence and there will be mediocre performers and very poor performers always so we have to do it with a holistic view and we have to implement that so the next uh, uh, what i try to uh, put across is between the policy and the purpose there is a process so how do we uh, organize this process is what i have taken up uh, the ecc i am taking up one by one for ecc the priorities are the following ncert finalizes the ecc curriculum that is scientific and realistic second the ministry of women and child welfare collects information on each child born classifies and continuously updates eligible list for entry into the primary school disseminates it to mhrd who would map a network of eligible centers to run the curriculum specific administrative Uh, uh, centers yeah as specific administrative cells area wise take responsibility to reach out to parents to enable choose schools from for their children upgrade infrastructure with short term and long term programs that is there are already some anganwadi so there is a short term plan and then a long term plan we cannot have all the anganwadis in place and then start or all the um, uh the preparatory schools in in place and then start the program include primary levels in navodaya vidyalayas meant for rural children they are residential may need a relook for the 3 to 8 age group because now they start from 6th class onwards but they are uh, rural based therefore it is important that we include primary levels in navodaya vidyalayas and uh, we can consider what we have to do about the residential status of the 3 to 8 age group the then a word of caution i would like to put in this when you are saying that three years of uh, uh, pre primary what do i mean by that do we have to have a, a pass certificate for every year uh, so that is what i am trying to tell you here evaluation has to be copy competency based children of this age group show drastic variations in development suppose for some reason a child enters later than three years should a child hold a 3 year pass certificate to enter first grade this is my question and i have seen that people uh, unrealistically demand such pass certificates the eligibility for grade 1 need to be assessed through the competency level at 6 years of age only then the middle school age group can be maintained below 14 else tackling adolescence issues may become a major challenge then i want the secondary to be transitional from school to university so i have put it as transitional secondary receive employ- employment needs and job specifications collated by the ministry of labor and employment set up course committees of specialists to prepare multidisciplinary cro courses of higher education english can be a part of it any medium of instruction that you would like to have for all these things should definitely make a part of this not only english or or any language for that matter has a language component mathematics has its own language engineering has its own language management has its own language science has its own language so everything uh, the chill, the people who cannot speak they have got their own languages of communication so th- there is nothing wrong with the multidisciplinary courses and also functioning in the specific campuses for the professional capacities to be acquired align with these and create secondary curriculum for 9 to 12 grades 
provide for lateral entries with vocational and academic streams. This is very important because there are some children who start on a, on a course, but they have to stop midway because of family circumstances. He may become a, a, a learning member for the family. The father may uh, expire. So in such cases, we must have a provision so that the child can uh, disengage from the uh, course, but then come back to the mainstream any, any time he wants. So now what should be the pedagogy? See, the pedagogy is a very, very, very huge subject. We cannot discuss it as a part of a policy and then we cannot put it across in the policy things because the pedagogy is child-centered. The, and the syllabus also, we make a syllabus with a particular uh, aim because a child has to survive in a social environment and also in a, in a physical environment. We select the subjects as such. What, how the syllabus is made, why do we have science? Because the child will know what the scientific world around him is. Why do we have social sciences? He will know what the society is about and how he has to survive in that society. And languages, art and other things are mainly for communication. So we have to have a communication component. Of course, the languages should be developed because they have to also evolve. And so we have literature components. In They can be taken up in, as, as a... As a uh, you know, as a, as a um, specialization for the children, if you want. But we should have, in the school level, we have to consider the syllabus, how it is made, and how we should use each subject uh, in, in, in bringing up the child's capacity to uh, learn and then apply. So, and again, another point is, in the centuries to come, the unit of learning is a skill that is to be perfected. Now, we, we talk about, we, have, we are following a different, totally different educational system uh, foreign to our country. Our country was, you know, the, the, the beautiful um, uh, architecture and so many scientific facts that we have in our country. We do not know how they have they have been conceived and they have been implemented. Such beautiful things and uh, an iron pillar does not rust over the years. So where did they have this metallurgy uh, um, capacity? So these things, the skill, how we get the skill that is a very important unit of learning. I, I put it as unit of learning. I'm not saying skill is, it is not skills that we, we teach, but it is a unit, as a unit of learning, we have to consider. For that, we have to practice work-centric, life skill-oriented, value-based pedagogy. This means an integrated approach while providing learning experiences. Now, this is a very, very vast topic. I would not like to go into it. But if you read the uh, focus groups on uh, the NCF 2005 focus group has dealt with the work-centric curriculum, life-skill-oriented curriculum, and value-based uh, pedagogy. So these are the things that one can actually peruse and uh, can get more inputs. And we can have uh, other, uh, other, other discussions and other rounds of discussions in which we can take these things up in a great detail. Now, we have to keep the medium of instruction flexible. Because each child is a syllabus in that, in the, at that level. For, we have to see the look at the child and then choose the medium of instruction. We cannot say it is a Tamil medium school or an English medium school or a Hindi medium school. You should not speak in Hindi in the English classroom or you cannot speak in uh, English in, the, in, a, in a Hindi classroom or we should speak only in English or only in Hindi. So these are the things that we should avoid. A child, if he can express in any language whatsoever, his thought processes, and if he find that he has understood, yes, we can make him 
learned the english medium or the hindi medium whatever by a process of translation therefore we have to keep the medium of instruction flexible and that is very important if the language policy should is to be uncontroversial in the field of education if this becomes a controversial uh, subject then our education system can never go forward it will always be slipping backwards then we have to use continuous and comprehensive evaluation for evolution at this point i would like to uh, um, answer mrs gayatri's questions uh, where she asked the yes the, I, i also read the uh, part about the olympiads and then the small uh, uh, weightage to be given in the iits and all that see i have my brothers uh, who had who had gone through iit and rec they all studied in the normal uh, government schools they never went for any coaching classes and my uh, my brother with four days to prepare after the pre university examination uh, he he got through iit meritoriously with the all india rank and, and in hundreds so he, they all studied and graduated from iit but today no child can compete here dr vergis a point is very well taken that marks are inflated the competition has become so so very great and children with with a point five difference the children are struggling to find uh, find themselves in a merit uh, merit list so uh, we have to use continuous and comprehensive evaluation for evolution and the, what does it mean again i'm coming to the point taken up taken by uh, uh, dr rishi uh, he said that um, uh, the the no detention the no, no detention policy they have misinterpreted it no detention does not mean no learning no detention means give the child his own space and time for learning the concept all children need not learn at the same point of time that is where the previous cce in its implementation failed again they prepared a report card again they compared the performance across the children it is not that it is from one child to himself from one day to the next day so the child should see as he learned more that is called continuous comprehensive evaluation for evolution and this once again is a very very huge topic in fact i i don't want to advertise but i have a, a, a blog uh, you please visit my blog chitragurumurtiblog.com if you type it the google gives a chitraleka gurumurti gurukul i have talked about what is continuous comprehensive evaluation how it can help teachers to individualize instruction in in a scenario of mass education when there is one teacher to 40 teachers how this continuous comprehensive evaluation comprehensive is totally um, uh, misinterpreted comprehensive is not assessing a grade for drawing and then upgrading on the basis of that grade the mathematics it is not like that the mathematics if a child fails in mathematics they see the grades obtained by the child in art and then promote the child and rather you say that maths you need not pass you you take that grade and that is also a kind of learning so you grade take the grade and promote the child so continuous comprehensive evaluation is very important as a as a pedagogic component rather than an evaluation component because pedagogy is continuous evaluation for evolution if we do, if i do not know what mistakes i am making today i will not be able to give a remedy on that and improve therefore this is what continuous comprehensive evaluation in short means and therefore i have written use continuous comprehensive evaluation for evolution and then provide for an internship curriculum across professions and vocations this is very important we you cannot just the throw just throw the person on the field and let him do all the jobs see like i became a principal in a school i was never trained but for me that school was the field of training but some people have the 
talent to learn from their adversities and their mistakes but not all will be able to do that now i did my ba from through correspondence from uh, annamalai university but when i did my ba i was a postgraduate teacher of mathematics in kendriya vidyalaya delhi cant and for me every day i correlated my children's behavior with the psychological foundations the social the, the, the sociological aspects with the, with, the, with my ba course so this is not happening that is why i am again and again saying that this should be the teacher education institutions should be in school campuses i am not saying teacher education should Very be good. schools i am saying that teacher education education institutions should be in the in the teach in the school campuses so that every day the teacher get, the teacher student teacher gets to know a school environment so uh, selection right. would like take some more questions yeah, yeah. i think uh, yeah we are taking a lot of time i'll, I'll take just two, two more uh, seconds Please. so that uh, what is the teacher about selection and payment of teachers should be government responsibility the infrastructure may be entrusted with private partners the huge amount spent on constructions from government funds may be used for regularizing teachers pay to a uniform structure pan india french model is worthy of examination for viability of the above suggestion in their system all teachers by turns get to work in both private and public schools it is regulated by the ministry of education teacher education institutes should be in school campuses that provide education of students at the corresponding levels open schools and universities last but not the least the open schools and open universities will continue to play the complementary role in fulfilling the educational ambitions of an individual the distance learning has also become a way in the corona scenario maybe virtual classes may revolutionize open learning systems so with this i conclude sorry for uh, thank you chitra of course uh, uh, this is for the benefit of the audience and of course group captain vijay kumar given that we have uh, overshot the time for the whole panel discussion i i am not aware of any constraint may have from the zoom side but uh, we will at least proceed with one aspect uh, and i would offer this suggestion there have been some wonderful questions from the audience you know quite a few members of the audience have posted in the chat now what i would request these people is that uh, i mean i hope all of you in the audience will appreciate that we also have to keep time but i thought it's very important as a moderator to give the panelists to express their heart and soul you know which really enriches the quality of the panel discussion i believe they have done very well despite the kind of constraints that were placed and uh, i must also inform you that in a side conversation we have had earlier uh, we discussed the possibility of taking up specific issues in the new education policy and uh, group captain vijay kumar was very happy to say that we will host panels on specific topics like whether it is the specific teacher training or whether it's the financing of specific aspects of education or whether it is uh, the language policy in schools like that so we will take up that kind of a focus group and we'll have uh, uh, the possibility to discuss each one of them thread that because this is a transformative stage in the education system of our country and uh, given the structure we have had i would invite uh, dr burgis to offer his uh, uh, input based on the the variety of inputs and the depth of inputs provided by the panelists you know uh, chitra uh, gayatri and rishi in alphabetical order <laughs> thank you thank you professor ganesh it was uh, really a learning experience as you. you rightly pointed out the money that is spent in education is not expenditure it's an investment i think the time that i spent with the group is really an investment in learning and i have gained a lot uh, 
Like, you know, normally what is happening is that once you become a vice chancellor, you are invited for <laughs> keynote addresses and you are invited for mostly to give, uh, you know, addresses. And once you have the address, uh, once uh, you disappear from the scene. So you do not get a chance to learn things. You know, yeah. From that point of view, I consider this to be very important. No, Vergis, I know the depth of your knowledge. That's why I said, please stay on and then offer your critique. And your comments. Uh, let, me, let me say that uh, the discussions, uh, I can take five minutes. Uh, sure, sure, sure. Please. Uh, the, the discussions, I think, broadly touches upon three types of issues. One is structural issues that one is talking Very about. Very good. Uh. The second one is the pedagogical issues that yes. one is talking about. And third one is that what happens beyond the schools. I mean, these are okay. the three ways in which I, I was trying to see the discussion that you are taking. Mm-hmm. Now, when you are looking at the structural issues, it seems that uh, everybody agrees and appreciates the fact that uh, early childhood education is uh, taken into account, taken on board. And I think that's a positive change that I find because normally in the discussions we used to discuss about school education and uh, early childhood education was not a major part of such a discussion. But today, what I find is that uh, a major share of the discussions in our group, at least, uh, a major share was on early childhood education. That is very good, a positive change that I find. Similarly, I also find that when you are talking about the pedagogical dimensions, I have only one point that to make that, you know, there's quite a lot of uh, discussions that you have taken place. But what I feel is that the teacher is an important element today. Absolutely. So the challenge, if you look into the policy context, is that how do we move from teaching to a learning organization? Schools, when it was conceived in 1834 by Horace Mann, it was conceived as a teaching organization. Like what we say that although Britishers left India, we did not leave the habits that they left here. So what happens is that although we talk about a lot of revolutions that are taking place, many of the revolutions and changes in educational reforms never entered the classroom. Some of them did not even enter the school compound walls, you know, and did not enter the schools, and certainly most of them did not enter the classrooms. I think the challenge here is that if you are in a position to bring these changes and revolutions, etc., to the classroom, and how this can be done. So I think the teacher training, if I can be slightly uh, off the cup remark, the teacher training should not be how to teach the students, how to make the how students. to make the students learn. And this is very different from teaching. So when we move from a teaching organization to learning organization, it is very important that the principal components of that organization and arrangement should not focus on teaching, should focus on learning. And this is something that we find in many schools. There is a notion called entrepreneurial learners, and that is more applicable to higher education. We are used only to entrepreneurial universities. Now what happens is that Students will learn only what they want. And that opportunity, that freedom should be given. That is where I feel that uh, we are really talking about flexibility in approach and comparability in achievement. And that should be the slogan around which we should try to organize school and classrooms. You know, flexibility in approach, as I mentioned, we should not see classrooms as a homogeneous unit because there are people from different groups and the diversity should be seen not as a liability 
but as an asset to promote a democratic society, a democratic culture, and a democracy within the country. So education system is also should be seen as an extension of the democratic processes, etc. So that is something that is very important. I would like to make one comment which uh, Rishi made, which I liked very much, about the strengthening of the public education system. Very nice. I think uh, I have only one dilemma. When you look at this policy, this policy is cast in the midst of a market-centered reforms and policies and processes. And it is addressing the people who are middle-class people who prefer market and they are against the state support. Although they reached, they became middle-class because of the state. But once they became middle-class, they are against the state. You know, This is something that we find uh, not only here, but also in the whole world. I find that, you know, strengthening public education system, I don't think that the way that we are talking about is very, very serious enough. I think there are two changes that I would like to comment on that. Firstly, state as a funding agency, I think this report or this policy clearly says that state as a funding agency, it has a minimized role or a declining role. State may be more seen as an agency which provides a framework to facilitate private and public institutions function. Because, you know, both in the school system and in the higher education system, today the majority of the institutions are in the public system. So I feel that state, the way that we look at state, the way that the state role is to be seen, there is a need for redefinition. And I think that is so important. The last part I'll say is that one has to make a distinction between a policy document and a legal statement. Policy is not a legal statement. And therefore, many things that are mentioned in the policy will not be implemented. I'm not saying the time to be pessimistic or skeptical. If you see 1968 policy and uh, J.P. Nayak wrote a you know, policy and after, and he identified which are the uh, suggestions or recommendations of the policy which were taken for implementation. That depends upon, it is not a financial issue, it is more of a political commitment. Which are the issues that will be taken up for implementation? Which are the issues for public consumption, but may not be taken up for implementation, you know? So one has to make a policy, one has to see this policy, and policies are political documents. There are two elements to policy. One is a technical element where we all discussing today, the panelists may be involved, but there is a major political agenda, and there is a major political process involved in it. So it's a political document and also a technical document. So it has to be seen from that point of view. And the last point I would say is that many of the, uh, the contents, any of the proposals in the policy records legislation. You cannot abolish UGC tomorrow. You have to have a legislative measures that are to be provided. You cannot bring the foreign institutions to India. You need to have a legislative measures for that. So the policy, in a sense, you know, this is a small document, but we need to have a larger and larger and larger and evolving documents on specific issues whereby this policy can be put into practice. You know, that's the way that the policy will be unraveling itself in, a, in, in its fullest extent, you know. So I'm not unhappy even some of the proposals in the policy are not implemented. And we should not expect that all the proposals will be implemented. You know, that will be too much of an expectation. Okay. But when we pick and choose the policies, it should be those things which are to be picked and chosen, which will have more 
rather wider social and positive implications. That's why I started by saying that education is a good thing. More people educated is the better thing that to happen. And one of the reasons this policy, when I said that proposes or supports this approach is that this is one policy which is very, very silent on unemployment of the educated. Thing. I don't want, I don't have time to hear you because that is an issue, which is a burning issue that is discussing. But if you go bit, read between the lines, the policy talks two things employability, and then it talks about graduate attributes. It does not talk about unemployment. It does not, unlike 1986 policy, this is not the time to get into that. That itself can become a point for a lecture. So I stop here, you know. So thank you very much, uh, Captain uh, Vijayakumar and all the fellow panelists, uh, and also to my dear friend, uh, uh, Professor uh, L.S. Ganesh, make him, for making me educated. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Bagis. Uh, Group Captain Vijay Kumar, given the time, what I would suggest is the following. You know? uh, Captain, are you there? Yes, please, go ahead, sir. Yeah. Uh, since the, uh, there are a lot of questions, I would request the people who pose the questions and the MMA to collate the questions, and uh, we will send that by email to uh, Chitra, Gayatri, and Rishi. We will respect the participants and try to address the, the questions. Briefly, we can give them at least responses and bullet points, you know, so that there will be a completeness to our discussions. Of course, okay. always the, the God of time wins, you know, so you cannot really go fully beyond time. So I thought that's a reasonable way to settle this. And uh, let's not fail any participant. I'll put it that way. No detention policy. So we will <laughs> take up the questions and uh, we will follow up with the email addresses of the participants and give individual respect. One thing we could do also is if we could create a blog space in MMA around this panel discussion. That's a good way that other participants can also view the questions and the responses given by our panelists. Is that a reasonable thing, the group captain? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. In fact, I was talking, uh, thinking about it. We'll get the answers. We have a video yeah. recording of this. will be available. On yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. We yeah. are out to that uh, Q&A. Uh, yeah. So we'll have a process by which the Q&A can continue. You know, that is it. So I will close this panel discussion with the same questions. You know, do you want India to be a prosperous country? Do you want India to be a progressive country? Do you want India to be a peaceful country? We have to be a powerful country. And here is a note of caution, but in a positive sense. We cannot afford to be a country with brilliant individuals dominated by collective mediocrity. That paradox is something that we should not fall into. It's a big paradox, you know, individual brilliance and collective mediocrity. We should not fall into, the, uh, into that paradox. And I would agree that uh, the panelists who brought out in many different ways I would say the teacher's role is pivotal, absolutely pivotal in this transformation. And I would reflect one of the comments made by a participant. I forget the name. Unless we, I think even Gayatri made the point explicitly, unless we ensure that the guru, the teacher, is the most respected person in society, you know, or among the most respected people in our society, that transformation could be a daydream. I think we have to really work on the teacher and enable teachers to be a learning force multipliers, you know, and the shift from learn 
And teaching to learning can happen brilliantly if teachers are transformed. Okay. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, MMA. Thank you, Professor Verdis. Thank you, Chitra. Thank you, Gayatri. Thank you, Rishi. And thank you, all the members. I believe I had a wonderful evening. And when Verdis says he has a wonderful evening, I'll just say, yes, sir. Because he's, he's too good uh, a thinker in our country. And uh, namaste, works. Namaste to everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you, Dr. Ganesh. Fascinating evening. As you suggested, I will share the complete chat box data within Toto so that they know the comments and everything they will know. Yes. They can respond to that. Thank you so much. We have over 1,700 viewers watching this program that shows the interest in the topic. And uh, so many questions have come to us from YouTube and Facebook. We'll try and address them, respond to them. But in general, if you see all the questions as uh, relevant to what the panelists really discussed and answered many of them, except for one or two. So it will be not that uh, the panelists, the, the people who read the question, not really good because many of the things have been addressed. Now, as a token of our appreciation uh, to all the panelists, we would like to present on your behalf uh, the end of the face mask. Go and give it a different NGOs. Uh, and this is what is really needed today. Uh, we do that uh, so that the, the credit and also the good wishes goes to each of the panelists who have spared your valuable time. And uh, thanks once again, uh, uh, no, uh, all the distinguished panelists, especially our chief guest, uh, Dr. Varghis, uh, for sparing his valuable time and staying till the end, sir. What really made this program very unique is that chief guest stayed till the end, listened to most of the issues and uh, answered some of the issues which are raised by the panelists. Thanks, thanks indeed. Grateful and uh, your innovating and your sharing of thoughts really added tremendous value to the event. And distinguished uh, panelists, uh, uh, people joining from different part of India and with different uh, ideas. And uh, Professor Rishikesh, from Australian Professor Majin Prem University, Chitra Gurumuthi, expert in the uh, CBSC and Kendri Vidya, Sangeetan, Kantri, Dr. Gayatri Deepak is again a specialist in private school. And Last but not the least, ably moderated by our, our own uh, Professor Ganesh. And then the success of the entire event depends how best we can bring the best out of the panelists. I know how my professor really worked so hard to do that. And you are the best teacher. You can bring the best of the teacher's teacher, actually. So you can <laughs> borrow everything that added tremendous value for this evening, sir. Thank you so much. I thank all the viewers watching this program live and also watch, uh, people who have watched State till end, uh, most of them in the, our uh, IBC live as well as in our Zoom. Thanks so much. Stay safe. And this is the time we have crossed the limit. Normally, MMA doesn't do. But difficult situations require tough decisions. We took a decision, yes, to go beyond because this is a situation which needs to be addressed uh, to know all the concerns. That's the reason we went beyond the uh, time limit what is laid down for us. Thanks so much. Stay safe, stay healthy, get back home soon. Till we meet again. Bye-bye. Good night. Thank you, Dr. Vakis and uh, uh, no, <coughs> to other distinguished panelists. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Namaste. Bye, Bye Namaste. 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 Bye. Yes. Thank you, Ajit Prasad Jain. Lovely having you with us.